All right. Well, I'm going to—I'll introduce myself uh, to you in a few uh, minutes' time here, but uh, I want to get a sense of who you are as well. Some of you I know, definitely not all of you. So, just by show of hands uh, for me, if you are a pastor or elder in your church or the church that you represent, that is pulpit ministry, your main teaching, preaching. Carl, you guys, most of you. All right. Well, brothers, no, I, I pray for you guys regularly, whether I know you or not. Uh, part of my pastoral prayer every Sunday is to pray for uh, churches like uh, yours, that the Lord uh, strengthen you and in, in your ministries and uh, enliven your preaching and that he lead forth a revival in our generation and that he use brothers like you to do so. And if there are specific areas of, of need that you care to, uh, to share with me about uh, a prayer requests and such and how we can partner uh, in prayer with you, I'd be happy to hear that. You can talk to me afterward. Uh, and I'm encouraged by you, brothers. Know that. I'm encouraged by where we're at as a denomination, encouraged, encouraged by the churches that you represent and the work of God that, uh, that you represent and the work of God that I know is going on there. And so by deduction, I'm going to assume the other two of you and Cassie, I know that you're, you're, you're not engaged in regular pulpit ministry, but you're still serving uh, your church and leading your church. And I'm equally thankful for you. Um, I'll say more about myself momentarily, but you should know I'm a, I'm a Puritan at heart. I'm a, a fan of the, the pastor theologian model of ministry of a highly skilled, uh, at least in terms of biblical faithfulness and fidelity uh, minister. Uh, and so if you are not the pastor doing the lead teaching and, and preaching ministry of your church, I want, I want to, you to hear me right at the outset as well. I am increasingly convinced that the future health of evangelicalism relies more on you guys than it does on pulpit ministry. And that's not because I downplay pulpit ministry by any means. I'm a pastor who preaches for 60 minutes most, uh, most Sundays. So I believe in the necessity of preaching, and yet the, the entire point of uh, what I hope to talk to you guys uh, about and have a conversation, a dialogue, feel free to interrupt and interject at any point here, uh, or to use that door to go find something more interesting. You're not going to offend me at all. Um, the, en the entire point here is that uh, I think the future of evangelical evangelicalism relies on our capacity as churches to figure out how to engage in ministry in decentralized sorts of ways. Decentralization. That's my hour and a half time in a nutshell. And I'm eager in one sense to see ministers doing less, but to be doing it better. Um, a leaner, we could say, but a meaner set of ministerial aspirations. And at the same time, I'm eager to see uh, saints the communion of the saints engaged in a more faithful kind of presence in the places where God has them. That's James, uh, James Davison Hunter's language in his book, To Change the World, is, is faithful presence. Uh, a decentralization of the ministry to figure out how can we promote and encourage and equip the saints of our church to be engaged in faithful ministry where God has them rather than calling them to be where I am as a professional minister and engage in ministry alongside of me. Now, to the preachers in this room, um, got a bit of a homework assignment for you uh, that will be due here in just a, a, a handful of minutes here. And I'm going to introduce myself for you, but while I am doing that, I'm going to invite you to zone out and to think of something more interesting, uh, namely your own preaching. Uh, and, and try and do the impossible for me, because I know you're preachers and you don't like using a single word or a phrase, uh, but a, a whole sermon's worth of words. But try and distill... Let's just call it the past two years' worth of your sermon ministry, your pulpit ministry, um, down to a single word, if you can. Train wreck. 
All right. Well, that <laughs> compound phrase there, sure. Uh, or, 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 yeah, you could use a, use a phrase. And I know that's an impossible task, right? You have the whole counsel of God that you are required by the Lord to hand over to your people. Right? So I know it's not just a single word sort of thing here. And I'm just going to go ahead and assume you're preaching Jesus and that you're preaching the gospel. And if you're not, let me invite you to repent and to hand over your pulpit to one of your elders who will faithfully execute the task that has been given to him. Um, so let's take the name of Jesus off of the table as a viable option. And let's take the gospel off of the, the, the table. Condense to, down to a central dogma or a theme, if you will, random arbitrary set of time, two years from COVID onward to today. What have you been preaching? And I'll tell you mine, but I'm going to ask for yours as well. But first, let me introduce myself a bit to you. My name is Steve Mappa. Uh, I serve uh, uh, Mount Rose Evangelical Free Church in Reno, Nevada, where I've been a member since 2004. Uh, it's roughly 18 years. Half of my life I've been at that church. Um, I think that's correct math. I'm not good at math, which is one of the reasons I became a pastor. Um, I attended Multnomah University uh, for my uh, biblical studies degree, later uh, seminary at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Completed a Master of Divinity as well as a, a Master in Theology and Historical Theology. Began a PhD in the UK, but decided uh, it'd be a better resource allocation of my resources to invest in my family. And so when we started having kids, I uh, withdrew from that uh, uh, dissertation before I completed it. I've been married to my wife, Jess, for 14 years, uh, 15 this year. I've got three kids less than six years old. My oldest, Paige, just turned six yesterday. Uh, we had a uh, My Little Pony party, and I, I'm proud to tell you I can... I name all of the My Little Ponies uh, for you. Not anything I ever aspired to in my life, but, but there it is. Um, at Mount Rose, I, I, I serve in a deliberately bivocational status. So Mount Rose, my church, pays me full-time. They're a very generous church, uh, and yet I have uh, intentionally decided, uh, strategically decided, uh, to be bivocational. Uh, so I engage in a secular form of employment, um, hopefully 20 uh, hours a week, but sometimes 30, 40 hours a week in another. Uh, uh, I work for REI. I sell mountain bikes and backpacks to Cassidy and uh, other such things. Um, I'm addicted to podcasts. I ride my bike to work all of the time. Uh, the, the church that I pastor uh, will be celebrating our 50th anniversary this year, 50 years uh, of uh, glorious existence, praise the Lord. 40 of those years uh, were served by Pastor Rob Ogden. Uh, 40 years of ministry, that's what I aspire to. Uh, 40 years of faithful uh, ministry, uh, many of that as a, as a solo pastor. Um, and he's still at the church, still involved in the church, still ministering in the church, uh, still engaged in pastoral ministry in the church, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, by all intents and purposes, Mount Rose is your typical, averaged, run-of-the-mill-sized evangelical church, which means we have about 75 in attendance. Um, and on this point, I also wouldn't have it any other way. There are advantages, I will say, uh, not liabilities, but advantages to being a small church. You, know, you don't always need a, a full battalion to advance a kingdom. Sometimes a specialized group of individuals, a special forces team of 10, will get the job done very effectively, and if not, uh, be a more strategic use of force than bringing in an entire battalion. Uh, but my aim today is not to talk to you about smallness versus bigness. That's not the contrast that I want to, uh, to set up necessarily. My, my goal is to talk about simplicity, uh, of simplicity, about a strategic, uh, let's call it an uncluttering or a decentralization of your church calendar. Uh, you guys in this room familiar with like cryptocurrencies, Bitcoins, Ethereum, Dogecoin, all that sort of thing? 
Maybe, maybe not, kind of, sort of. That's what I'm after. To use an analogy, I'll switch to the analogy because that one didn't work. Um, I, I'm after a decentralization of, of ministry, not an, a, a disengagement of ministry, but a decentralization of it. The church should be laboring and ministering, toiling, as the Paul, language Paul uses in Colossians 1, uh, uh, 28. Toiling, right, so that he might pre- present every man mature in Christ. We need to be doing that and quit your job as a pastor if you're not doing that. All right, Hear me clearly at the outset there. I'm an advocate of ministry here, and yet my goal is to at least get us to consider, I don't think I'll persuade anybody here, uh, but at least to consider and to pray, pray about what a strategic uncluttering or a decentralization of your church calendar might look like with all of its perhaps program Centered, church-sponsored, building-dependent, volunteer-staffed ministries. number of disclaimers before I get going. Uh, like the majority of you, I'm a preacher. I, I exposit a text of the scripture. I've been preaching through the Gospel of John for three years now, and I'm still not done. I've got one chapter left, but I don't have necessarily a text uh, for you today. I hope and trust that what I will be saying is uh, uh, biblical in some form or fashion and is recognizable uh, as such, but I don't intend this time to be expositional. I also trust uh, that what I, I'm a student of church history and of historical theology, I I trust that what we'll be talking about is rooted in historical precedent uh, within Christianity writ large, even if it might be um, unfamiliar to us as evangelicals. Disclaimer number two is, uh, if uh, time permits, before uh, we're done, I I, I hope uh, to be presenting some statistical, demographical, sociological sort of data, poll studies, uh, demographic uh, trend numbers to you. Uh, and I'm not a demographer. I'm not a sociologist. Uh, I don't ascribe ultimacy or inerrancy either to uh, sociological studies, but I will present to you uh, the information and the conclusions I draw from them in, in an illustrative sort of way because I think they uh, underscore um, both the opportunity as well as what I expect to be a coming need for us in our generation of ministry to be thinking through how do we not complexify our churches but simplify our churches. Uh, Again, disclaimer number three, note this one very well, just to underscore it one more time, I'm not talking smallness versus bigness here. The size is out of the scope of my consideration. It is not smallness in contradistinction to bigness that is in my view, but simplicity in contradistinction to complexity decentralization of ministry versus institutionalization of our ministry. I'm after perhaps a a, a narrowness of ambitions for us as a church that perhaps just perhaps might lead to a narrow gate. And yet I'm well aware the gate is narrow and broad ambitions that uh, are are out there for us uh, uh, might, might allure us. Right? The, the, the way is hard, Jesus says, that leads uh, uh, to this narrow gate, and those who find it are few. And so my expectation, I've got two expectations, I think, here in terms of a strategically simple church, I don't think many churches will be persuaded by this. I don't think many pastors will be. I don't hold any allusions to the contrary. And I think those that will pursue a strategic simplicity, not by a necessary of consequence, uh, but uh, uh, will nonetheless be small churches. Very large churches numerically can be very simple churches strategically. I don't think the two go hand in hand, but I I would expect the majority of strategically simple churches will be numerically small. And finally, uh, my disclaimer number four, 
here is that while I am speaking in defense of a simple ministry portfolio for your church, uh, let me be quite clear uh, that uh, I'm not attempting to make any sorts of value assessments in, in promoting this. All right, I've got enough EFCA in me that I'm happy for you to be you and for me to be me. And I am trusting the Lord that you are as led by the Spirit as I pray that I am here. And so if you have a complex cornucopia of ministries on your church menu, and if I hop onto your website and see a drop-down menu that's, you know, I have to scroll down to see all of the things that you're doing, it's so much. The Lord bless you in that work. I'm on your side here, okay? What I will be doing today is advocating for you as pastors and as ministers to be focusing your attention on doing actually very, very few things, but to be doing it exceedingly well. But I am not casting stones by any stretch of the imagination at those who approach ministry in a more uh, ministry-diversified sort of ways. Let Let me get you a picture. Here. I mean, when I approach church ministry, I don't think in terms of business, but that's the analogy I'm going to use here throughout the day, so that's ironic. Uh, but think of, uh, think of a, a locally owned mom and pop restaurant, right? The little boutique restaurant that, you know, I mean, Italian restaurant. They've got the best food in town. Everybody knows what their main dish is that they're famous for. In Reno, I'm thinking of, you know, Johnny's Italian restaurant and Johnny's Ristorante Italiano on, on 4th Street in Reno, which has been around in Reno since my father-in-law was a child. And uh, everybody knows it's got the best lasagna in town. Sure, they may have a few other menu options on the plate to be sure, but that's just kind of there to round things out a little bit because people are coming for the, la- the, the lasagna. Now, I'm convinced that the church... Uh, that the focus of the church at least needs to be uh, something very similar to that, to be going very deep on a few things, dialing in our recipe on a few menu options. But uh, listen, I'm from Reno. Uh, I grew up in Las Vegas. And so I am uh, innately uh, appreciative of the smorgasbord of plates uh, uh, options you can get by going through a casino buffet. Uh, You can go through a buffet line and choose uh, an entire uh, you can have tacos and lasagna. You can have Chinese food and prime rib, a little salad, all on the same plates if you care to. Right? Your ministry philosophy might be the equivalent of that, right? of, of the Atlantis Casino Buffet, where everybody in the whole family can get a little bit of a, a slice of exactly what they're craving, what they have an appetite for. All right? And my ministry might look like um, Johnny's Ristorante Italiano, Now, let me ask you this. Is your lasagna as the casino buffet as good as mine? As long as you're asking, I'm going to argue no. (laughs) It's not. But I'm willing to acknowledge that what we're talking here is preferences, palate differences, taste differences, not first order principles, but practical preferential preferences, preferential differences, excuse me. Both, both meals, you know, you go to Johnny's, you're going to spend 25 bucks on a plate of lasagna. You go to the buffet, you're going to spend 25 bucks on a plate of whatever it is that you want. Same cost, and everybody's going to end up fed and well satisfied at the end. And so, final disclaimer here just go ahead and dish up the Word of God, however, it is that you are equipped and led by the Spirit to do so. If you prepare your lasagna a little bit differently than I do, all right, please know that I'm still in your corner. I'm still happy for, to share the kitchen with you, and I'm still rooting that your church succeeds and people come and feast on what you're offering to them. 
All right, so enough of introduction and disclaimers. I gave you a little bit of a homework uh, assignment here. It's time to turn in your homework. It's not, uh, uh, no need to be totally formal here by any stretch of the imagination, but let's attempt to do things decently and in good order. And so just go ahead uh, here in some capacity, use, a, use your preaching voice. Everybody can hear and Neil can hear on my recording here. Just throw out that one word summary or, uh, or, or phrase that has been an encapsulating the central dogmas or themes that you've been preaching on for the past two years, other than train wreck. What have you been preaching on? I know it's an impossible question. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been preaching through Matthew, um, so I'd say follow, maybe? Okay, excellent. Do it, Carl. Probably love. Just we've been love. doing a lot of uh, church unity. Love one another. Love your neighbor. Love the person who's different than you. Yeah. Uh, who has strong convictions that are distinct from you. So I think the thread of it all would be love. Um, maybe the hot. You know, the, oh, I'll yeah, 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 yeah. Leave it there. By the way, as I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you guys, it's occurring to me, you know, at present, a lot of my training is in historical theology. The idea of a central dogma is something that I absolutely hate. Uh, you know, <laughs> Calvin had, he was the, you know, his central dogma was election. It was, it was an improper way of assessing things. So forgive me for asking you an unfair and improper uh, question, but uh, you know, just for the sake of time, I'll give you my answer. The thing that I have been preaching on, and I've already told you, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, and I, I, I hope uh, my... my, my my goal every week is for the text to set the agenda uh, for me, as is yours, I trust. But uh, the theme that I come back to again and again and find myself encaptured by in an inescapable way is an idea of, of, of vulnerability, uh, of vulnerability. Uh, and you see, if I'm perfectly honest with you, I've been wrestling with this kind of existential question, this chicken and egg sort of question uh, for quite a while uh, now, because as I've tried to keep tabs on my own uh, spiritual health as an individual and as a pastor, I have noticed a uh, tendency in me uh, of late, uh, a, a kind of pessimistic mood, I would call it. Uh, and I'm not by nature a, a, a pessimist uh, by any means, quite, quite uh, the contrary. And, and let me just be clear, I, I don't mean depression. Uh, I don't mean despair, I don't mean dread, uh, but there's uh, been this unshakable, lurking sense of, uh, of like being in an exposed position, if you will. Like there's some chinks in the armor of our evangelical identity and our great enemy, the great enemy of the church has been exposing that weakness uh, within us. Uh, it seems to me that evangelicalism at present is slouching towards some years in the wilderness of a season of being tempted and tried, if not wandering, for a while. Uh, and I, I expect that the evangelicalism that comes out of those wilderness years will look very different from the evangelicalism that went into those wilderness years. And I'm not altogether convinced that's a bad thing either. By the way, the church should always be reforming. Semper Reformanda was one of the, the, the hallmarks of uh, the reformers, and there is nothing like a good wilderness season of testing and trial to shake out that which is shakeable in a church or in a denomination or in a, a Christian movement so that the things which cannot be shaken will abide. And it is my earnest prayer and optimistic hope that God is doing exactly that. So I don't fear the shaking, and yet... Um, you know, I, I think just implicitly we've all been feeling such things in the air and a, a type of unsettledness about us. 
Uh, and I say quite frequently at, at Mount Rose in the context that I, the circles I float in, uh, I, I'm a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. Right? So by pessimism, I, I, I'm not without hope by any means. It does seem to me that things uh, are, are quite dark at present in American Christianity. Uh, maybe that's too strong of a way of putting it. They are getting darker, perhaps might be the more guarded way of saying it. It feels like there is an eclipse coming. Like I told you a moment ago, I'm a fan of historical theology, and so I, I, I cling with resolute hope not just to the kingdom promises of God and the gospel, but uh, uh, the way that gets articulated in church history is, is varied in, in generations. But there is a phrase that came out of the Reformation uh, that I cling to. This shirt I'm wearing that you can't see, I think, actually says it. My wife bought it for me. Uh, it's a Latin phrase that uh, says, uh, says this, post tenebras lux. Are you familiar with that? Post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. This was kind of the battle cry of the, the, the reformers, right, as they were looking out upon their cultural milieu, their theological framework, the health of the church, and saying, guys, it looks a little dark. But after this darkness is going to come light. That's what I mean by short-term pessimist but long-term optimist. Things may be getting dark, but the true light which gives light to everyone is coming into the world of that, I am absolutely sure. But I've been in this chicken or egg sort of dilemma here for the past 18 or 24 months or so. I think it started about the time I was preaching uh, through the Upper Room Discourse, um, which was 18 or 24 months ago is when I started. Uh, but have I been preaching on vulnerability because I have this pessimistic mood about me and therefore I have just been preaching to myself in an attempt to you know, diagnose uh, what's going on in my own heart and soul and apply the scriptures to me and that's just come out in the form of sermons that I've allowed my own congregation to listen in to the internal dialogues that I am having with the scriptures. Is that what's happening? Or have I actually, you know, preached, uh, been preaching on vulnerability? Has that actually caused my pessimistic mood uh, that I've been, I, I've been in? I can't quite tell, but for one reason or another, vulnerability has been by far and away the predominant theme that I have been addressing uh, of late as a church. And there's a lot that I am tempted to say here on this topic of vulnerability, and it's correlated to uh, simplicity of a ministerial ambition, because what I am calling us to and doing strategically less is going to expose us to, uh, to a type of vulnerability that might make us think I'm not doing enough, or I'm not doing what I ought, or I'm not doing what the church down the street does. It might make us look like we don't have vitality ab about us, a type of a liveliness about us, when in fact, I want you to hear just the opposite today. I think there is great vitality and liveliness in doing the very precious few things the Lord Jesus Christ actually calls his church to be doing. Uh, but if there's any bit of exposition that I'm going to do here, I'm going to direct your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, which I'll read for you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Um, but I've been uh, thinking and bouncing around in these, this world of the Apostle Paul, right, and particularly in his Corinthian epistles. And, and you, you get this, this sense of Paul in the entirety of, uh, of his corpus, but any fair reading of the Apostle Paul's life will tell you that you know, Paul had learned... <coughs> what the church in our day needs to learn. Uh, we need to retrieve the very impulse that drove Paul forward. And you get that impulse, I think, in spades in the Corinthian epistles where Paul speaks so frequently and persistently about the great possibilities that come from our vulnerability, the possibilities that come through our vulner vulnerability, of the great strength that is possible in our weakness, of, of how the life of Christ is at work 
in us, all while the death of Christ is at work in us. And so as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, he says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. I almost just stop there, because that's what I want to press into. I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because the Lord has said to us, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I think the proper conclusion which Paul directs us to is, Uh, our role in the world as the church, as ministers, as those image bearers of God and those being renewed in the image of Christ is to boast all the more gladly of what? My weakness. So that the power of Christ might rest on me. This is the world that I've been living in for the past two years now. I'm just wondering what in the world could it possibly mean to believe that when I am weak, then I am strong. Precisely then, the grace of God, the sufficient grace of God, the very power of God is made perfect in my weakness. And and what does that look like ecclesiologically? Is that true just for me as an individual or is that true of my church? What does that look like on a congregational level, on a denominational level? You don't have to answer this question, but I want you to at least think about it. Are any of you pursuing weakness as a ministerial strategy? What do you aspire to be this year in your five-year plan? Weaker? And if not, which I assume is the answer that all of us would give, no, I don't want to be weaker. Lord, please deliver me from weakness. But let me just ask you, why not? Why not? Because it sure seems to be that we have an unequivocal promise of the Lord here. The weaker you are, the more perfectly I will demonstrate my glorious power through you. And so I'm just wondering, and have been for months now, God, if, are you bringing us to a place of weakness as your church in America, as evangelicalism? Are, are you exposing us to a great type of vulnerability only so as to prepare a way for your sufficient grace and almighty power to be put on display through our churches? Is that what you're doing, God? The language of, of, of John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 comes to mind. The language of Jesus pruning every branch that does not abide in him and does not bear fruit. God, it looks like your church is in a season of pruning, like branches are being cut away, that you are simplifying and decluttering this vine. But are you doing that, Lord, so that the branches that remain and abide in you will bear more fruits? And so, God, if that is what you are doing within us, so that by your grace and in your time you might make us more fruitful, would you give me contentment? In this vulnerability where I see branches being lost. Again, I've just been living in this world where I'm wondering what Paul is on about in those Corinthian epistles when he says, we always carry about in our body the death of Jesus Christ. What does that look like for, on a congregational level? Or I'm wondering in Judges chapter 7, you know, why God took Gideon's fighting force down. You remember this story, right? When Gideon starts out uh, raised into leadership position in the, the time between uh, the Mosaic uh, leadership and the, the, the reign of the kings. And Gideon is raised up with a particular focus, at least in Judges chapter 7, to address the you know, quote-unquote problem of the Midianites. Go and fight the Midianites. Go engage in battle. And as the text there in, in Judges 7 uh, clues us in, told you I'm bad at math. I, I forgot the numbers. I think Gideon starts with something like 32,000 people, young, able-bodied, servant-fighting caliber men. 
in his ranks. And uh, you remember, if he declares in accordance with the Mosaic law, by the way, uh, if any of you are fearful, you can go home, go back to your homes. If anybody of you are, are, are terrified in a week of heart, go back home and don't fight this battle lest you inflict your weakness and your fear and trepidation and uh, embitter the hearts of those around you. Remember how many people went back home? Two-thirds of them. So Gideon's left with 10,000. But then it gets pruned down even further, doesn't it? Down to 300. God, what are you doing? You're giving me 300? It doesn't change the outcome of the battle one iota, does it? When the outcome in the Lord's hands is secure. But I'm just wondering why the Apostle Paul pointed to this Gideon story in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which Neil read for us earlier at the start of our day. And the Apostle Paul points to Gideon and says, in effect, that's what Christian ministry is. It's like broken vessels. Brokenness is just a part of the deal. It's like losing two-thirds of your people and resources and talent, and then that little remnant that's left uh, is given the task to go and figure out and do how God uh, do what God has called you to do. Uh, not, by the way, to the praise of your own ingenuity or grit, but uh, because simply because His power has come to rest upon you. Well, today in our time that we have, what time does this end? By the way, twelve. Well, thank you, Cassidy. Uh, I want to again to begin to apply that kind of concept of vulnerability, uh, of weakness, uh, of smallness, of pruning, of simplicity to our ministry philosophy and to our congregational life and to our ecclesiology. Um, I'm skip over. You guys know what leaven is. You're pastors, right? It doesn't take a lot of leaven. The title of this talk is A Little Leaven in Defense of a Strategically Simple church. Leaven is a change agent, right? It doesn't take a lot of it to affect a change, an entire lump of dough. A little bit will do, right? A fermentation process does not take a lot of yeast. And these are the things that Jesus points to uh, as the analogies, if you will, for the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't take a lot to affect the change. It just takes the right amount of ingredients, uh, or the right uh, presence of ingredients, if, if, if you will. And that's, uh, that's really what I'm after today is to get us thinking through what are the essential ingredients without which Christianity will not rise? What must we be doing? What are the essentials? This is how the reformers talk about what, are, what is the nature of the church and what are the essentials of the church? What are the marks of the church? This is a question that's existed long before Mark Dever, by the way. Um, <laughs> And if you go back and do the historical work in the, in the, the Reformed uh, period, the Protestant Reformation uh, period, uh, very precious little is required. Precious little. The preaching of the word. Right administration of the sacraments. Pastoral prayer. And the practice of church discipline. That's it. You can reform the world with that. You can bring light into a dark generation with that. All of which, by the way, is capable of being present and finding its natural home on a single day, on the Lord's day, when God calls his people out of this world and out of their secular times and to enter together as a unified people, a covenant community into his sacred time and into his sacred rest to be directing their attention toward him. And so my thesis for you to consider this morning, and again, you won't hurt my feelings one iota if you reject the entirety of what I'm going to to be saying here, is that the contemporary evangelical church is over-programmed. 
We have the, the precious essentials. Praise the Lord for that. Evangelical churches have not abandoned biblical preaching, have not abandoned uh, the, the, the sacraments, have not abandoned prayer insofar as I'm uh, aware, maybe they have in places, and have not abandoned in its entirety church discipline or the, the process of discipleship. And yet we have added a lot in. There's a lot of other things that we have added into the mix. We have built, at least structurally speaking, strong-looking churches that have fostered what looks like vitality and observable metrics. But in doing so, it's my fear that we have brought into being a type of ministry, a form of ministry that is uh, frankly unrealistic for many congregations to obtain and unsustainable for many congregations who attempt it. So what is this form of ministry uh, that I'm talking about here? Uh, I believe I just used the, the language of a ministry portfolio. What do I mean by that? If you're in, interested at all in the investment world or have a retirement plan, or you've heard of a stock portfolio, right? Well, a ministry portfolio is like a stock portfolio. It's the range of products or services offered by your organization, the things that you are investing in. And your ministry portfolio is representative of the sectors of Christianity, which you believe will be the most profitable in the years to come, where you'll see the greatest appreciation over time and the return on your investment, the best dividend-paying sectors of Christianity, if you will. Your church's ministry portfolio is the range of programs into which you are investing your time, your talent, your personnel, your budget, and asking your church to buy in to the same things. You're their financial advisor, if you will, their spiritual advisor, saying, here's what I am recommending you invest in. And you're creating the platform for which them to do so. And it's my contention this morning, simply that our ministry portfolios are over-diversified. We are attempting to do too much. I believe a lot of the right ingredients are there. A lot of the right sectors are being uh, invested in. But we still have uh, uh, put, in too, put too many slices of the, of the pie in. We have allocated our ministry capital into too many sectors. And in doing so, we have exposed ourselves to uh, what, will, uh, what presently are and what, in my estimation, will increasingly be volatile markets, if you will, where the secular headwinds will be causing uh, choppy waters for us. And we just might not be properly hedged against the coming spiritual recession, which will eviscerate a lot of the unrealized gains that we have been experiencing as evangelicals for a long time. We've been riding a bull market of evangelical spirituality in our country, and we are beginning to see the tides of that trend shift. Perhaps we are entering into a bear market, if you will. And so my contention is that we are overly allocated in a diversity of ways in our ministry, and I think simply we need to simplify, to be trimming our positions in some places and reallocating those resources into some more uh, fundamental value-add sorts of propositions. We need to rebalance our portfolios. And so let me just paint a picture uh, for you of what um, the church that is overly diversified in its ministry portfolio uh, might look like. And, and here, let me just invite you, think of your own church calendar, whether you post one online, whether there's one that you operate on with your leadership team, or whether it's just like uh, mine on my own computer, and that's it. I'm the one that looks at it. You know, uh, but think of the typical uh, expectation of what the average American thinks a church is and should be in the types of things it should be doing. And so, you, you know, perhaps you have a recovery group on Mondays, you've got, you know, adult men's study on Tuesdays, Wednesday night is the prayer meeting, 
Uh, and that's happening in a quiet classroom down the hall. And in the main sanctuary, we've got Awana going for the kids. Thursday night, we'll have small group ministry in, in various homes throughout uh, town. Friday night is youth night. Saturday afternoon is the moms meet up at the park. You know, and, then, and then comes Sunday, right? This is prime time, uh, where all of your most uh, uh, prestigious ministries are on display. And so you've got your nursery program and your youth program and your elementary age program. You've got, perhaps, adult Sunday school classes. And then there are all of those seasonal type things that you might be doing, whether following a liturgical calendar or a secular calendar, right? Uh, um, so you've got, perhaps, um, I don't know, Mother's Day events, Father's Day events, Halloween trunk or treat. Don't forget there's Christmas and Easter in there as well. Some of the kids are off, and so let's do a retreat with them. It's a good time to, to do a men's uh, outing uh, as well. Maybe you have a newlywed ministry, or maybe you're in a college town and you really like to minister to the college age, so you have a college age ministry or a scouting program or a boys and girls type program, or you're doing an outreach program for, for, via Christianity Explored or Alpha, whatever Christianity 101 sort of outreach you're doing, or a new members class or a baptism class. Hopefully you have some mercy ministries going on. Maybe you have your own food pantry or a schedule for those serving uh, at the local shelter, you know, programs that, uh, that uh, these are the types of things that are running in a diversified ministry portfolio. And the, the goal of all of these, right, is to reap a, a, an, 